This is an ABC podcast. The first time I saw the classic Australian band, The Screaming Jets, was at a Triple J event. They were great. This night was a showcase and there were some other bands on that night that seemed to really challenge the Screaming Jets and bring out their competitive instincts. The other bands that came out that night were trying to look cool and in the end that came over as kind of restrained. There was no such problem with the Screaming Jets, a band from Newcastle with its roots in classic Australian rock and roll, the kind of rock and roll that emerged from Australia's beer barns and pubs in the 70s and 80s. That night, the Screaming Jets played a blistering set with total conviction. Dave Gleeson, the lead singer, tore up the stage. Dave was part Iggy Pop, part Bon Scott. He was shirtless, having a great time, and he really wanted all of us to have a great time too, and we did. But how could I have known that that wild man on stage was once a very nice, pious Catholic lad who sang at Mass and grew up in Cardiff, New South Wales, with a mum who fostered something like a hundred babies and dozens of at-risk kids. Dave and the Screaming Jets are still performing after all these years, and Dave also sings with one of his and my all-time favourite bands, The Angels, since the untimely death of Doc Neeson some years ago. Dave is a bona fide rock legend, and I'm so pleased to be talking to him. Hello, Dave. Welcome to you, sir. Yeah, it's great to be here. You grew up in Cardiff, like I said, which is kind of like a country town just outside of Newcastle. What do you remember of Cardiff in the 1970s, the playground you grew up in? It was my world. My father had uh, grown up in Cardiff as well, so uh, he had a bit of a name in the town. The, the, the Gleeson's Corner was where they had uh, his, his parents had a shop. His father died sadly early, but Cardiff was uh, the be-all and end-all. The, the footy team was the best footy team and... <laughs> Our house backed onto the bush, so I spent all my time on my push bike with me mates hanging out in the bush and doing, looking for frogs and lizards and, and sometimes brown snakes, which uh, <laughs> thankfully we never found. <laughs> but, yeah, we, uh, I, I absolutely loved it. It was an idyllic, uh, an idyllic way to grow up. How many kids were pinging around in the house at any given time, Dave? So I've got eight in the family, three brothers and four sisters, six biological siblings, and then my two youngest siblings are adopted, special needs people. And, uh, yeah, so it was always buzzing in our house. We, uh, we had a lot going on. What were your sleeping quarters like in a house with so many kids? <laughs> <laughs> Well, my, me and my two brothers lived in uh, the garage under the house. wasn't used for a car. It was converted into a bedroom. <laughs> the thing that I remember mostly is I had a trundle bed because there wasn't much room there. So for anyone who doesn't know what a trundle bed is, it's a drawer under my big brother's bed. And I had to make that bed and it was, oh, it was such a pain because all, all the blankets would get caught up as I was pushing it in under the bed. Um, but... That was also one of the greatest things because between that, Jared and Anthony, they listened to a whole different range of music from Jesus Christ Superstar to Stiff Little Fingers to ACDC and the Angels and Neil Young. So I had this, uh, every night I went to sleep with a cassette deck on and uh, music playing. Was there a lot of love in the house? There was. There was uh, a, a lot of love. It was... Um, it was fairly hectic. Dad was away a lot. He was a, a, a travelling salesman and we all played football and uh, my sisters played netball. So there was always, uh, you know, getting dropped off to 
practice and picked up and driven to games on the weekend. So it was it was just a high energy house, but a lot of love, absolutely, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of church going went on. <laughs> Indeed, and it sounds like there's a lot of uh, a lot of kindness there. You know, the your mum's willingness to have foster kids and adopt kids and, and all that. Was it good for you to grow up with adopted kids and special needs kids? Do you reckon, and the other kids? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, and and it was definitely it gave us a kind of uh, a vision into that into the life of you know people with special needs. And I think that probably what um, bode well for both Timmy and uh, Lee was that there was so much going on. It wasn't like the the house kind of stopped because there were these special needs kids in the house. Uh, I was looking after Lee when I was eleven or twelve, thirteen maybe, and. Uh, and she, she was, you know, she'd come from a, a fairly kind of um, not great home situation. It was just the way they were kind of thrown in there, and everyone was everyone was kind of equal in in the Gleeson household. And where did you fit into the pecking order and the lineup of brothers and sisters? Oh, middle child, Richard. Ah, you're the Jan Brady in the family, are you, Dave? <laughs> Absolutely. So my brothers and my, my older ones, I think they were born like a year apart. And then there was two or three year gap between my brother Anthony and I, so yeah, I was the baby of the family for quite a while. And then uh, a couple of years later, my, my younger sister came along. But yeah, middle child with all the problems that go along with it. <laughs> How about your older brothers? Were they an influence on you? Absolutely, they were my heroes. They uh, they were both excellent rugby league players. Uh, both of them got the Cardiff Cougars Most Outstanding Sub Junior Award. So their names are still on the uh, on the wall at Cardiff Rugby League Club. I looked up to them and uh, to my own detriment sometimes because they were both adept at pulling the Michael out of me. Anthony could make me cry at the drop of a hat. Oh, really? Tease you till you cried? Really? Oh, he, was a, he was the greatest teaser of all time. For example, I'd walk in and he'd be with his mates and I'd say something that I thought was funny or witty and he'd say, do you wish you were dead? In the silence that followed, you know. and, and sometimes I did. I'd be like, "Yeah, now I do." Now you've said that, cruel but funny. One time uh, in particular, we were home. Mum and Dad had gone out. Uh, was, I'm pretty sure it was an anniversary or something. And he was, we I always had a football in my hands, and he's like, "Throw me the ball," and I'm like, "No, I'm not allowed to throw the ball in the house. Mum and Dad's not here. Throw me the ball." So I end up after much cajoling, throwing him the ball. And to my horror, he walks out of the way of this vase, this glass vase oh. that's, that's standing there on the shelf, and it smashes into a million bits. And he was beside himself with laughter. I was crying because I knew that there was punishment coming for that. Well, you know, I think you can do those things, Dave. You can do those things to your little brother, not knowing that your sins will be exposed on national radio like this one day. <laughs> That's the thing. You know, there's a bit of karma there, isn't there, exactly. at the end of the cycle, Dave? There That's you right. Tone. <laughs> Cop that. <laughs> so with all that, with all the kids in the house, you're in Cardiff, which is a which which is a low-income place, outlying a low-income city like Newcastle as it was back then. Was there much money in the house, Dave, or was money pretty tight? No, no, money was pretty tight. As I said, Dad was a travelling salesman, so it wasn't like he was on a great wage. Uh, I went to Maris Brothers, but all, as my two older brothers did, which is now St Francis Xavier's in Newcastle. We all went to Catholic schools, which was uh, expensive at the time, but there was also the thing where you could go in hat in hand and grovel to the headmaster and get a bit of, a, uh, get, get a bit of relief on your school fees and stuff. 
before the show, uh, you know, the, 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 the show would come to town once a year and into Newcastle and I had to, we'd collect bottles and cans and go and get the 10 cent refund mm, on them. Mm. Uh, I never had a new bike. No one in the family ever had a new bike. Never got a new bike till I left home and I was making my own money. But I, we always had bikes, but they were secondhand, bought, bought through the paper and stuff like that. But, yeah, there wasn't enough, much money around, but uh, that didn't kind of stop us having fun. What were summer holidays like for the family? Summer holidays were still, in my memory, the greatest times of my life. We'd go up to uh, Foster on the mid-north coast of New South Wales and we'd stay there for five weeks in the tent. Well, not one tent, two tents joined together. <laughs> Actually, Dad was a rep for Kangaroo Tent City at uh, one stage. <laughs> and so we got uh, two tents, a three-man tent and a six-man tent. This is back in the day before the little capsule tents that we have nowadays. And we joined them together with, uh, with an awning in the middle. And, yeah, it was, it was mayhem. We all slept on camp stretches and stuff. And a lot of the people I made friends with in, uh, in the camping ground were in caravans and uh, I do remember one kid walking in one day after we'd been hanging out in his caravan he looked around he said you're not very rich are you (laughs) 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 mum in her snippy tone said no but we're happy (laughs) (laughs) that's an excellent comeback that's great it's a big commitment to raise eight kids what Mm. were your parents like particularly your mum I mean I think this sounds like it was driven by your mum this decision wasn't it yeah, she, she did a diploma in social welfare and before that she was like any kind of working class mother. She thought that bad girls had babies uh, out of wedlock and that bad kids uh, were, you know, it was their own fault obviously but then as, as time went on and we had multiple children, uh, whether they be, you know, seven or eight, nine years old or babies coming through the house and uh, mum got to realise that, that unfortunate things happen to people and uh, if you can help them out, that's just a, a good way to be. And obviously Dad was involved in all that too. He was uh, he was involved with the St Vincent de Paul at church and, uh, and at the age of 82 he still goes around and visits people who can't get to Mass and stuff like that and delivers the Eucharist. And uh, so, yeah, the moral values in our family were very strong and that came from both uh, both my parents. So you had babies coming into the house that were, mm. were going to be uh, brought over for adoption. Yeah. Babies are really lovely. Was it hard for your mum to relinquish them when it was time for them to leave and go into their, their adoptive homes? It really was. Um, she kept in contact with every uh, every family that the kids went to, it wasn't like she'd say, oh, the baby's leaving today, but I'd get home from school and there she'd be crying and and you'd know that the baby had gone. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very traumatic for her every time that she had to uh, relinquish the babies. And, and there was uh, a time where we had two and my older sister Joanne must have been about 17 or something like that. So she took over responsibility of caring for one of the little fellows and of course you can imagine the bond that she made and it was a a very sad time when both those babies left and mum and Joanne were both uh, beside themselves. You mentioned that you wanted to follow your brothers and become a rugby league player Mm. maybe even play for a club what happened to that your plans for that did you end up playing rugby league at all Dave? Yeah I played rugby league till I was uh, 12 years old um, and I, I was destined for greatness Richard. Of course you were. I was going to play first I was going to play for St George obviously as their halfback and then I would have been picked for Australia but uh, as I said 12 years old I got a neck injury 
uh, which wasn't a break, but it was uh, bad enough that the doctor said that I was no longer allowed to play full contact sport, which oh, that just devastated me. I was, I, I cried for days. I did. What happened then? What did you do? Did you stay with the game anyway? Yeah, my parents thought it would be a great idea to uh, still stay involved with the game. And, and uh, looking back, it was, but uh, I became a referee. Oh, and right. oh, there's no fun in being a referee, I've got to tell you, especially as a 14, 15-year-old kid. We were sponsored by someone called, uh, by a company called Howard Smith Travel. So on the back of every referee's jumper in Newcastle was Howard Smith. So we were known as Howies. And little <laughs> seven-year-olds would go, oh, how you going, Howie? You know, <laughs> you just have to nod and smile and... Uh, yeah, I, I, I still remember my parents because everyone was playing sport. My parents had dropped me off at like, I don't know, 7.30 at a, an oval, whether it be Glendale or Windale or any suburban town around Newcastle. And I'd have to go up and meet some hard-bitten club secretary who's got a cigar <laughs> in his mouth and, you know, swearing like a trooper and, yeah, you can sit over there. And there was no dressing rooms, so I just used to sit on my... Sit on my little lunchbox and wait till the time came to blow on, uh, blow the whistle and get the game underway. And so I'd do three games in the morning, and then I'd go and uh, run lines in the afternoon. But the good part was it was uh, I was earning money while I was doing it, so that was the, the it made me a bit of a, a self starter in the money earning area. And yet, and yet, you are a, a natural rock star. You like pleasing people, Dave. How is it being the most unpopular man on the ground? How did you go with that? I think I overcompensated it with for it years later, um, but look, it was there was some pretty torrid times. So I had parents coming on the field and yelling and screaming at me, and I went to the judiciary a couple of times after sending people off. One guy I sent off was a representative, a Newcastle rep, under twelve or thirteens player. I was the one who ended up getting in trouble for that. <laughs> but yeah, it was a great great learning curve. It gave me an ability to deal with kind of. Everybody, uh, you know, whether whether they be young or old, and gave me a, a bit of a mature mature outlook. And stand up for yourself too, I suppose. Yeah. Dave. The only thing is, as you're just telling me this, I just I just had this thought in my head that if you had become a player, you would have seamlessly transitioned into rugby league commentary, and probably would have been you know put on the Channel Nine jacket, and you <laughs> and, and you would have been like the the, the absolute an absolutely legendary rugby league analyst, I reckon, uh, in the post match sort of uh, coverage. I think. Did you ever consider that too? I wonder. Well, I, look, I've always thought I was a, a, a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a knowledgeable guy about footy, but it's the same as when someone tells me, you know, oh, you know what you should do in this song? And, and I look at him, I go, what songs have you done? So <laughs> I, I think it'd be the same if I decided I was going to talk, uh, talk about footy. People would be like, mate, how many times did you play for Australia? None. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, um, you, you must have sung a lot as a kid. Did you? Is that what you did? Did you walk mm. around singing all the time? Yeah, I did. I, uh, I used to do Elvis impersonations. <laughs> Elvis impersonations as, as a 12 or 13-year-old. I don't know how they sounded, but I think I had the hips and the, the lips uh, under control. I just loved Elvis. I just thought he was the... I don't know why... I still do. He's just got the greatest voice I've ever heard. So, uh, but I don't know why or how I came to be so enamoured with him at such a young age. Because my dad was into Nana Muscuri and my mum was into <laughs> Perry Como and Inglebert Humberding. But uh, somewhere along the line, Elvis uh, Elvis tickled me fancy. I used to sing when once I uh, I went to high school. I started surfing, 
Uh, I'd be singing on the bus on the way into town and I'd be singing out the back and uh, there was a bloke called Scotty Wallace and he used to say, give us a song, Elvis, uh, out the back and I'd, uh, you know, start singing a few Elvis songs. So uh, music's always been, and singing's always been a huge part of my life. Tell me about your first ever performance on stage at the Cardiff Workers Club at the age of 11, Dave. (laughs) So I went down with uh, another family um, to Cardiff Workers Club. There was a Friday night family disco. We, they had a talent competition and there was a guy I knew there, Paul Kerr. He was in the year younger than me at school. And for some reason we decided we were going to get up and sing and uh, and we did The Monster's Holiday. Oh, which... Frankenstein was the first in <laughs> line the and one. the Wolfman came up next. I used to sing that in the playground all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so uh, strangely, I, I guess we both knew the words to that song and we got up. Um, there's a Wikipedia entry that says that um, the first time I ever performed was on stage at Cardiff Workers with a friend of mine who was nude. <laughs> was what? Like, so, so there's a couple of 12-year-olds on stage and one of them's nude seeing The Monster's Holiday. I think more people would have heard about that. <laughs> that that's Wikipedia for you. They, uh, they certainly have some strange uh, facts in there. Do you reckon that might have been your older brother giving you a hard time? <laughs> Sneaking in as a Wikipedia editor, just changing the vision there. Oh, and there was a nude guy as well. Right. Oh, the tone. <laughs> Tony Gleeson, he can't, he can't not have a crack at someone. <laughs> and how did you like your first time on stage singing? I loved it. It was something that I kind of thought about even in the last couple of, uh, in the pandemic years, that was the first time I'd ever really got like a cheer on stage, and and then for many many years, uh, you, know, you know, since I started in a band at the age of seventeen, I've known that feeling. And then for two years, not having that feeling, it's uh, it's undescribable and irreplaceable. <laughs> it's just uh, one of those strange drugs that uh, unless you unless you feel it, as you'd know, Richard, when you're up there and people are clapping and laughing and enjoying themselves and it's because of you, it's uh, it's quite a heady feeling. So as a kid, what's your first record? What's your memory of buying a first record and how did that come about, Dave? Well, I was walking home from school uh, one day and I'd found $10 and it was a rainy, rotten day uh, and just down the bottom of our street we lived in a, a kind of where all, they were all crescents and, uh, and dead ends and stuff. Uh, I found a $10 note, a crisp uh, blue $10 note, and I was like, how good is this? I, was, I must have been, oh, I was still in primary school, so maybe not 10 or 11. And I went home and I said, Mum, look at this, I found 10 bucks." And she goes, where? And I said, down on the road, ro- sit down on the footpath. And she goes, well, let's go and see if anyone's lost it. So we <laughs> drive down that street and she stops at every house and it's no. raining, as I really? say. Really? Really? Yeah. Every house, I'm knocking on doors, just saying, "Did you lose ten dollars?" And everyone's going, "No." I'm sure during that time, someone did lose ten dollars, but saw me standing there in the rain, asking him if if it was theirs, and they thought, "This poor kid, I'll let him keep it." But yeah, so that's I, I got ten bucks in the end. I, I was able to keep it. And Saturday morning was a bit of a ritual. We'd go down to Garden City and go shopping. Uh, in Qatar and just near Cardiff and mum went off to do her shopping and I went into Sound Level which was a a record shop and came out of the car I was smiling like a Cheshire cat mum said what'd you buy 
And I pulled out, you know, those big rubber masks that they don't just go over your face, they go over your whole head. Well, like a gorilla mask. Yeah, there was a gorilla one, right, with big, <laughs> with big red teeth. And, you know, it was like a, a hideous, but I just thought it was the best thing ever. She goes, oh, Dave, what, what is that? And I go, oh, it's amazing. She goes, how much did that cost? I say $9.99. <laughs> okay. So she just looks at me like, oh. Now she marches me back into the record <laughs> shop and says, who sold it to you? And there's some guy, 18, 19. She's gone up to him and go, hey, what are you do? How dare you sell this to a young boy, you know? And she's berated him. And I'm crying by this thing. <laughs> and so in the end, he gave the money back. And she said, now you can select a record. So I went over and through tears, I bought a record called 20 Country Greats. For no reason apart from I think I liked the cover or something like that. And it just turned out that those songs on that record all still mean something to me to this day. But the one about five tracks in was by Slim Dusty. It was called The Biggest Disappointment in the Family. And from that time on, because of the trials I'd been through, even on that day, I thought that's my theme song. So uh, I used to love listening to The Biggest Disappointment in the Family by Slim and then met him years later and was able to tell him the story of how I became a, a huge country music fan. He was allegedly a very nice man. I never mm. met him, never got to interview him. But uh, he was allegedly a very, very, very nice man indeed. How, how was he when you told him that? Oh, he's amazing. He was such a warm character. He list, He's one of those guys who you can tell he's listening. He's not just going, yeah, you know, yeah, we got to, uh, to, to record a song on an album called Not So Dusty, which was a, a bunch of Australian artists like uh, Oils and Powderfinger and Ed Cooper, uh, to name a few, all did uh, track, Slim Dusty tracks. We did one called The Cunnamulla Fella, and we got to meet him and, you know, he, he sent me a couple of letters to say how stoked he was with the recordings. And uh, so they're now framed on the wall with a photo of the Screaming Jets and Slim mucking around out the front of a pub in North Sydney. How lovely. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the stories of him are amazing. He had this, had this purple fair lane. Uh, it was called Old Purple and that's how he, he said he'd drive into country towns, he said, and people knew Slim was there because they saw Old Purple driving up the main street. And he'd get in the trucks, he'd get in the the, the, the big um, road trains and drive them. He was just a, an all-Australian hero. So this is, of course, many, many years away from when you'd bought that, that country album mm. with uh, the, my, the biggest disappointment <laughs> in the family was me. How did you get noticed by your future Screaming Jets bandmate, Grant Wamsley? Well, so I, uh, in keeping with uh, when I was a young fellow, I just used to walk around school singing I was a bit of a fish out of water at high school because uh, no one from my primary school went there. So I went from a, I went from being school captain at St Joseph's at Cardiff, which was a school of probably, I don't know, 140 kids, into Morris Brothers, which is a school of 800 kids. And, yeah, as I say, I didn't know anyone. Uh, and I used to, I, for some reason, um, I, I remember walking around singing Billy Joel's For the Longest Time. I don't know. I was probably... Probably a weird kid now, I think of it. Nice um, melody. Nice melody. Yeah, yeah it's a great melody. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so I was uh, in year 10, I sang at the school mass. Uh, I sang the Hounds of Heaven, How Rich Are the Depths of God. And it was a, a couple of days later, Grant Wormsley uh, came up to me and said, look, I'm, I'm doing this, I've got a band, him and another guy, Frank Manita, who was also at the school. 
He was a drummer, and uh, he said, do you want to come along and have a sing with us? So you got and... talent spotted while singing a hymn at mass <laughs> for the Screaming Jets. That's how you yes. got the gig. Exactly. <laughs> so what did he ask you to do to prepare for your first rehearsal with them? Well, he said, look, we haven't got, any, we haven't got a microphone or anything, so you'll have to get a, a, a microphone. By this stage, I was a, a referee. So, so I had money, and I went down to... Uh, Tandy Electronics. Tandy Electronics. <laughs> I had a look at their range of microphones and I bought a realistic microphone which was hardwired. It wasn't uh, it wasn't the microphone that you plug into a lead. The lead was already on it. And it cost me 35 bucks. It was champagne gold. <laughs> I thought, if we're, get, if we're getting a mic, let's go the champagne gold one. But what did you uh, plug it into, Dave, given that you don't have a PA? <laughs> Well, Grant had an amp uh, and Frank had his drum kit and there was a stereo there that had a, a microphone input. Uh, so I was singing through that. And, of course, I'm trying to get volume over a guitarist and, as as you know, being a guitarist, it's all about the guitar. Uh, mm. And that blew up, I reckon, after about oh, two or three rehearsals. I think I still have Frank's dad for that stereo. <laughs> Yeah, then I got a little amp, like a guitar amp, and I was singing through a guitar amp for, for a lot of practices after that. What was your idea of music at that point? What kind of music did you want to play? Did you start out as one of those kind of hard-driving angels, uh, cold chisel slash ACDC-inspired Australian bands? Yes, yeah. All the songs that we did were cold chisel, Australian crawl, uh, the angels, Monday rock. Strangely enough, we uh, I remember when we got a a support gig with the Angels. And, and this was before the Screaming Jets. We were called Aspect at the time. And uh, we were all beside ourselves with joy. This is amazing, fantastic. And then we're like, oh, what are we going to play? Because seven of, of the songs in our sets <laughs> are Angels songs. And any band, any band knows you don't want to get up there and play the uh, the main headline no, acts. Uh, you don't want to be a cover band for the headline <laughs> act. No, no. Oh, so, yeah, we had to learn a few more songs. But... Uh, yeah, I'll never forget playing with uh, the support in the Angels. I think it was at Cessnock Workers or Cessnock Supporters Club. Uh, to be in the in the presence of greatness at that time, it was must have been about eighty seven. Uh, was uh, was a thrill beyond belief. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Dave, we were talking about your Newcastle background and you were playing with the Screaming Jets in those early gigs around uh, the pubs and clubs of Newcastle. Now, this would have been not so long after the infamous riot at the Star Hotel. Now, I never went to the Star back in the day. This is before my time. But I'm, I'm told like there were like three bars in that hotel. One of them was a gay bar. Uh, they had like live music happening in most of the bars pretty much all the time. And then it was forced to close down. And when the police came to enforce that closure, they had to shut one of the bands down. And uh, allegedly one of the police assaulted one of the singers on stage. And then all hell broke loose. Were people still talking about the riot at the Star Hotel around Newcastle in the days when you were playing around the pub scene? 
Oh, great days, Richard. Great <laughs> days. Um, yeah, so that happened 10 years before, uh, so 70, 78, I think that happened. Uh, but it was still very large in uh, in local folklore. There was songs written, obviously, by Cold Chisel, wrote Star Hotel, but there was a song by a band called The Heroes, and uh, it was called The Star and the Slaughter. They, we will remember the night of the star and the slaughter. And that was a song that we used to play in our set when we in, in my first band because it was such a legendary event. As you say, there was like a gay bar, there was a rock bar, there was a sailor's bar, there was a drag bar. It stretched through from one of the main streets, uh, from Hunter Street, Newcastle, to King Street. So it was a whole uh, a block. But we certainly traded on the fact that we were from Newcastle where the Star Hotel riot happened. So you evolved from a, a band, a cover band called Aspect, which is a suspiciously prog rock type name <laughs> for a, for a bunch, bunch of hard-headed rockers like yourselves, and you became the Screaming Jets and started doing original songs. Was Newcastle a really great place to transform into that kind of band in those days, Dave? Yeah, it was. When, when, by the time we decided that that's what we're going to do about 1989, a few bands had started to come out of Newcastle that had their own uh, music and... Uh, there was always bands that were doing original music in Newcastle, but it was hard to kind of break out because everyone saw Newcastle as a as a cover band scene. But it was a great place to cut our teeth because um, I think being in a cover band for us was a, 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 like an apprenticeship of learning about the songs we love to play and, and what it was about those songs that made people get up and, and shake their booties and stuff. So it was kind of a, a, a perfect time for us to... Uh, to go further afield and like we'd, we'd played for three and a half years in that first band and never played in Sydney and so to, to be finally making it down to Sydney not as a cover band but as a band trying their own uh, our own material was uh, it was the perfect time. I think when you're coming out of a regional place like Newcastle audiences you really need to seize their attention you really need to be very compelling when you're playing in a, in a place like Newcastle and mm. really really get right in their faces and make them pay attention and not just talk at the bar while you're performing on stage was it like that did you feel that need to be kind of like in your face and, and not be ignored by the crowd yeah well I mean I, I, I always loved the uh, the front men uh, Jim Morrison was a particular hero of mine Bon Scott Doc Neeson they were all so compelling live and Iggy Pop, as you mentioned before, that kind of um, weirdness as well kind of gets people's attention and crawling around on the floor and taking your shirt off and all that type of stuff. So we kind of, we really uh, were one of those bands that wanted to be in people's faces and, uh, and, and make people stand up and, and take notice. And Newcastle was... Uh, it's the old chicken wire thing, you know, you walk in there and there's chicken wire, you're like, oh, this is going to be a good gig. A, a friend of mine, when I was in my first band, he was there, he managed us and he said he'd seen uh, In Excess at the Ambassador nightclub. Um, they used to do a dollar rage on a Tuesday night and he said he saw In Excess, he said, even though people seemed to not like the singer because he was a little bit effeminate or whatever, he said he moved around all night and no one could hit him with a, with a can or anything like that. And I was like, ah, moving target. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, it's all, always about uh, moving and a and lot, of, lot of colour and movement for the kids. You as a front man, Dave, you've got that thing that Bon Scott had and uh, Dr Neeson had to some degree. And more so Bon Scott, I think, is 
I don't want to overcomplicate this because I don't know if you consciously have this idea in your head, but you're doing that thing on stage where you go, look at me, I am beautiful, I am beautiful. <laughs> but you're also laughing at yourself because, you know, you're kind of not at the same time. And yeah. there's, so there's this kind of absolute self-belief, but you're sort of undermining it by your own laughter at the same time. Do you, is, that what, is that how you think or you just sort of kind of do that by instinct? Look, I know all the rock moves. <laughs> I know every single one of them. But when you're doing them, you have to have a certain amount of, you know, I guess, pathos about it. And, and I'm not Robert Plant, but when you pull off the really big moves, that's when you've got to turn around, give a sly grin and say, I know, I look like a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> so given that you're writing original songs at this point and you're writing the lyrics to them, how seriously did you take yourself as a poet at that stage, Dave? Uh, well, poetry was my thing. Once again, going back to the Jim Morrison, uh, Jim Morrison love. Um, I wrote lots and lots of poetry. At one stage, I used to wear a, a caftan. You what? A, caf, a caftan? No. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not on stage. Not on stage, but just around the house. Why? Caftans and sarongs. Is that because that's what poets do? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> True bohemian <laughs> lifestyle, but not in front of anyone. Um, and, yeah, I had a, a, a huge selection of sarongs that I used to wear as well. This is back before I had a before I had a, a, a guts hanging out all over the place. Um, Time for the yeah, caftan again then. I, I, I never saw Jim Morrison wear a caftan. I thought to myself, he probably would. It's he, one of those things. He's wearing a caftan on the inside. I think that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> when the band wrote songs together, I don't know if you saw that uh, brilliant Beatles documentary, Get Back, where you can see Paul McCartney yeah. sort of just pulling, seemingly pulling Get Get Back out of thin air. Mm. Incredible. Did you do that with the band? Did you sort of sit in a tight circle and write songs together or did you go away with some ideas and bring them all together when you came back together again? Yeah, there was different kind of processes. Uh, Grant and, uh, and Paul Wazine uh, were the chief songwriters and they kind of came in with a lot of songs completed. But the magic happens for me when you're all sitting around and someone's got a riff and then I say, oh, what about this? And, and that, that building of a song to me is, is the, the real magic of it. That and the fact that I'm not a very good guitarist, so I do need <laughs> someone to, um, to help me out. But it, it certainly came from all different spheres of, uh, of how the songwriting, there was no kind of real uh, formula for us. So coming out of Cardiff, you started playing in big city Newcastle and then from Newcastle, of course, you got to play in big city Sydney after that. How did you and your manager exploit your reputation as a bunch of wild lads from Newcastle once you uh, relocated and became a kind of nationally famous band from Newcastle, Dave? We were signed to Ruart Records and they were an indie label who had bands that were so not like the Jets. There was like Tall Tales and True and the Trilobites and Rat Cat um, and Wendy Matthews, so all these totally different bands to us. Uh, so when we got to Sydney, we start we really played up on the new. We're from Newcastle, you know, where the Star Hotel Riot was type thing. <laughs> and people would take a step back. Oh, Newcastle, are you? Um, I remember telling Michael Horrocks, a good friend. Uh, he ended up doing video smash hits or video hits on on Channel Seven, and I told him we were from Cardiff. And he said, I used to drive past the sign to Cardiff uh, when we were going north with the family for holidays. He went to King's College, obviously, in Sydney. He said, I just used to think that's where hell is. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of played on that. And I missed a few meetings early on. And um, our manager, Tom, at the time, people would say, where's the singer? And he'd go, mate, you don't want the singer here. <laughs> 
Just let's just keep it between us, and we'll bring him out when we need to. So, and then I had a bit of a reputation to live up to, which I thought was fine. <laughs> well, that must have been hard. The truth is, Dave, you're a very nice man. I've, I've known you for a very long while. You're a very nice man, Dave. So, so were you disappointing when he turned out to be <laughs> such a lovely chap? <laughs> I lived. I lived up to it in some ways, def- definitely. <laughs> so in '89, you guys entered the Triple J's Triple J's inaugural national battle of the bands. Yep. You're a member of that, Dave, because you won that. And what, what was that like? That competition. Well, it was unreal because uh, we, they held the uh, New South Wales heats down at Salinas, and part of the uh, part of the. the process for for getting scores and points was um you know the songs the performance but crowd involvement so we started taking bus loads i think in the beginning it was two two bus loads of like 18 people each so you know 40 people uh we took them down and and down uh, from newcastle down from newcastle <laughs> oh, crazy times um, and we were on the bus with them as well. So it was, uh, we were, you can imagine the state we got to the gig in. By the time we got in the finals, I reckon we took five buses down there and our crowd was just going absolutely nuts. While they were doing the judging, um, they had a performer, Lisa Edwards, I think it might have been, I could be wrong. Um, and she came on to perform just while the judges were doing their thing. And the crowd just shouted it down, Jets, Jets, Jets. And she hated us. <laughs> I've, I've met up with her after that but uh, and things are fine. But, uh, yeah, we just had this this parochial crowd and to be standing there in Salinas and, uh, and have everyone screaming out our name, you know, we thought we'd made it then. If you're in a rock band and you are trying to sort of G up this kind of wildness and uh, kind of insanity on stage, sometimes it actually works. And you might find yourself in fear of your life. And this happened to you in 1991 when there was a showcase event held on a barge in the middle of Sydney Harbour. What do you remember of that night, Dave? Yeah, it was Darling Harbour and that was a Ruart Ruart showcase as well. We were playing on this barge and between us and the the wharf there was probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 metres of, uh, of water. So people started jumping from the from the the wharf into the water, and there was some pylons there. So a guy climbed up on that, and he jumped in, and it made for a really great spectacle. Um, and then people started jumping from the roadway overhead, which is it's the roadway that heads over to Anzac Bridge now. For anyone who knows uh, who knows uh, Sydney Harbour or the Darling flyover, Harbour, right on the uh, Western yeah. Distributor, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So they were jumping from there. It's twenty meters into the water oh. at least, or. 15, 20 metres, a guy's diving, they're doing pencil dives. Anyway, so there ended up being about 30 or 40 people in the water and I thought that looks unreal. So I took off my boots, left me jeans on, of course, and jumped in the water. And what, like jumping into a mosh pit or something? Yeah, but a, an aquatic, <laughs> an aquatic <laughs> mosh pit, right. Aquatic mosh pit. And I thought this is fantastic until everyone started swimming over to me to grab hold of me and go, hey, i got Dave Gleeson. Then I started drowning taking in lots and lots of water and I did a bit of a Tarzan thing. I went underwater and swam underneath the crowd and came out the other side and there was the the police, water police boat there. So they helped me up and got me back on the barge and there's some great footage. Um, We we did an ACDC song called It Ain't No Fun Waiting Round to Be a Millionaire and in the video clip I get back on the barge and I'm I'm, I'm expelling Sydney Harbour water, Richard. I had swallowed about six litres of water while I was in there. 
and uh, had to get up and finish the show after that. But oh, um, Dave, that's actually slightly terrifying. You know? <laughs> I was absolutely. You must have been very upset and frightened. Yeah, I, was, I couldn't believe that I'd put myself in such a ridiculously dangerous situation. How hard were you working as a band in those days? And the reason I ask is I can remember around about that time being in New York City walking into a record shop and just flicking through some new releases and there was the Screaming Jets album there in that shop in, I don't know, it was Tower Records or something like that? Right. I don't know. And I thought, man, these guys have really made it. What was that like and how hard were you really hammering that workload in those in those years? Well, it was just constant. Everything was about the band. We... Uh, we lived in two houses across the road from each other in Rushcutters Bay because we, putting us all in the same house just wasn't going to work. So, yeah, we, we lived between these two houses and everything was about doing gigs. It was, uh, I always say to people, we'd, we'd play six nights a week and then on, on the seventh day, that would be when we had time to wash our clothes and start off, get ready for the next onslaught not once did we wash our clothes, Richard. <laughs> there was a place called Springfield's and King's Cross and um, that was where you went on Monday night for a bit of an industry night. Um, and then, of course, going overseas and uh, and touring was just... Uh, in the beginning, we thought that's the way it was going to be forever, you know. It was uh, tour Australia, go overseas for two or three months, do Europe and, and the UK and the US. And uh, that's how it went for the first probably three years. So... Uh, we, uh, we certainly covered some ground. Your mum, your lovely mum, Glynis, died around about that time. Mm. How old were you when, you when she died? I was 24. It was 1992. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, – took the wind out of, out of my sails, that's for sure. Um, we were doing a show. We were in, in Nambucca Heads, actually, and got a call 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something and uh, – yeah, was uh, told that mum had passed away. There was uh, a car accident, so there was uh, no uh, no time to say goodbye or any of that type of uh, type of thing. So yeah, it was very quick and brutal, and uh, yeah, that that set us set me back on me heels a bit. <laughs> who, who told you? Who was able to ring you and tell you? Well, strangely enough, uh, I was in a, a group called Antioch, which was a Catholic youth group uh, at my church uh, prior to being in the Jets. And there was a guy called Jared Lawson who uh, who was in that group as well, and he'd become a, a police officer. And he rang me, and uh, yeah, we had a had a moment on the phone, and uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty heavy. I'll I'll never forget because my tour manager came in, and um, he he was crying when he he said, "Dave, you have to call this number," and he was crying, and I was like, "Oh." This can't be good. Cause, and it was the first time anything like that had ever happened that, that someone so close had, uh, had passed away. So it was uh, on a plane back to Newcastle and uh, all hung out with all the family and we were just there in disbelief for, for quite a while. But it, it brought us close together as a family and we, uh, I think we're, we, we're in better contact still to this day than we probably were before that happened. Was it okay to perform while you were still feeling that grief? Did that help or was that not good? Uh, I think it, it did help after, uh, you know, having something to do, having something to get back to and I probably uh, might have said some fairly unsavoury things on stage. I was uh, pretty angry at the time um, and for for one thing, getting back on the road I think was uh, – 
was just part of that thing that had become part of my life, the show must go on type thing that you that you kind of learn whether you've got a cold or a broken leg or, or someone dies or whatever, you just got to get up there. People want to see a show and, uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly did help me you know, get through that time, I think. I think performing on stage is like strong drink, isn't it? It has this mm. really powerful effect on you. It's... Um, and you're having an enormously good time. You're kind of aware of that and the, having a sense of being addicted to it and an addicted to it in a, as it's a good thing or a not-so-good thing. What, what do you think about all that, Dave? I definitely think it's, uh, it's an addiction. It's a love affair. It's something that kind of... Because it's not... Especially with, with a, a gang like the Screaming Jets. I know we've, we've, uh, we've changed personnel over the years, but we're still a gang at heart. And uh, to, you don't want to let your, your teammates down. There's more than more than just you to, to worry about. There's the other guys in the band, there's the road crew, there's the fans out on the out there. So it's kind of like a it's a strange type of um, commitment that you make. And once you kind once I made it I kind of I feel very beholden to uh to the people around me and, and to the fans especially. Maybe that comes from your upbringing in this huge house full of tonnes and tonnes of kids where you have to learn to practice the give and take and, you know, you assert yourself but then you've got to pull your head in a bit and um, mm. learn how to manage, be yourself and form the connections but still have alone time and doing all that. Do you reckon that helped you manage your way through that that period? Yeah, definitely. The values that you learn about, you know, about the, the people who are there to help you and the people that you can help as well. I mean, definitely the things uh, that you learn as a kid, for me, have, uh, have, have gone through into my adult life and uh, kind of formed the man I am. Tell me how you met your wife, Katie. Well, uh, Katie was working at Ruart Records and... <laughs> Uh, I was in South Africa uh, doing a movie. Our first video clip was better, our first big one, and it was made by a guy called Ralph Zimmern, who was a South African video slash filmmaker. Um, and I asked him if I could be in a movie that he was making, a feature film. Really? You wanted to be an actor? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I'd be amazing. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't. I was absolutely terrible. I, was, I, I couldn't deliver the same line twice the same i i kept changing it go why are you changing it i go oh, i was just trying something different he's going well don't just say the line and so i was way out of my depth and katie was working at ruart as i said and she was kind of organizing some interviews for me in south africa while i was there and she became my only point of contact in australia and i used to keep her on the phone and just because i wanted to hear an australian voice and have someone to talk to um, and then I said to her, I'll bring you a gift and, um, and I'll take you out for lunch when I get back because you've been so kind to me. And I had met her before, but um, just briefly and hadn't really kind of formed any connection with her. Um, so I didn't kind of remember her all that well. And when I walked in and I saw her sitting there, I thought, fantastic. We are, we're going to a nice restaurant instead of McDonald's. Uh, that, that, was, that was the two options I had. So I think we went to the Dolphin Hotel in Surrey Hills and uh, I just instantly fell in love with her. And then we had a clandestine relationship because no fraternising uh, between bands and uh, bands and the people that work at the record company. Oh, how did you keep it down on the down low then? How did what did what what subterfuge <laughs> did you uh, employ to keep it on the down low, Dave? I used to ring up and say my name was Guido. <laughs> uh, I was in. A, hey, it's Guido here from uh, from New York. I'm looking for Katie, and uh, they'd go, "It's that Guido guy from New York." 
And uh, she'd go, oh, put him on. So we'd talk and, yeah, we were, we were in a relationship for probably oh, three or four months before it came to light uh, with, the, with her boss at the record company. And she told Chris Murphy, who was the big boss, and his first words were Sacker. <laughs> but uh, that didn't happen and she stayed working there. But the funny part of it was that uh, she told me later on that uh, when she started working at Ruart, she said, I want to work here, but I don't want to work with Dave Gleason or Why? the Screaming Jets. Because she's heard all these stories about me that... Uh, that I'd perpetuated in some way, but you know, they surely couldn't all be true. So yeah, she she had a, a certain uh, dislike of uh, of me in particular. <laughs> right. Now I, I have read one of these stories, and as you said, there is a kind of an errant entry about you in Wikipedia in your first performance doing Monsters Holiday on stage. But so let me just put this story to you, Dave. I have read a report that the Screaming Jets got thrown off a plane and were forced to return to the terminal for the band singing Puff the Magic Dragon too loudly on the plane. Can this possibly be true, Dave? <laughs> I was only watching footage of it the other day. Uh, it came up, but that was uh, 21 years ago. We'd been we'd done a gig on the Gold Coast and we got back to the hotel at like 3 o'clock in the morning. We had to be up at 5.30. So we, you know, being the uh, smart-minded individuals we were, we said, well, let's stay up. And so we did, and we got to the airport in fairly unruly shape. And when we got there, there was like balloons and people dressed up in old world kind of air, airline stuff. And we're like, "What's going on?" The guy comes up, says, "Mr. Gleason, uh, I, I see you on the first impulse flight from Brisbane to Sydney." And I was like, "Are we unreal? That's great, mate." So I did a bit of an interview with him, talking about how great it was that there was this Newcastle guy taking on the big airlines. Um, and then bought two bottles of Crown Lager and put them in my pockets as I walked onto the plane. And then we were sitting down the back. And as as was customary, sometimes we'd sing The Love Boat. Sometimes we'd sing <laughs> Puff the Magic Dragon. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Because flying was still a bit of a novelty to us back in those days. Uh, I, was, I remember sitting there and the, the head steward comes up and goes, I'll have to take that beer off you, Mr Gleeson. And I go, oh, sorry, mate. Yes, yeah. so I hand it to him, knowing I had another beer there. And then I was covering me up, my my elbow, so that no one could see me drinking. And he came up and he said, I need that bottle too. <laughs> and I go, what bottle? He goes, come on, Dave. You know and I know better. Good on you. So I gave him that. And eventually the, the pilot came on and said, we have to return to the terminal. And next thing you know, we're getting frog marched off. <laughs> For more than a decade now, you you were asked, to front the Angels, your favourite band of yep. all time. How was that for you to step into the shoes of the great late Doc Neeson, Dave? Uh, it was a bit harrowing, um, obviously being a fan of, of him myself and the first national tour we ever did, we supported the Angels on 42 dates around the country and I must have watched him 35 of those nights just in absolute awe. So I knew all the songs, that was the, the main part. Um, I remember John Brewster said, I, I ran into him, at, they were doing a Brewster Brothers show in a restaurant in uh, Harndorf in the Adelaide Hills. And I showed up and during a break, John said, what Angels songs do you know? I said, all of them, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, Doc was still alive at this time. He'd left the band. We did some demos and, yeah, they, they, they kind of weren't looking at getting the Angels back on the road, just seeing what they could do, and a bit of a vibe grew around it, and then they asked me to sing. So 
I was a little bit reticent, but having their blessing, John and Rick and Chris Bailey's blessing kind of made it much easier for me. So, yeah, I just took my cues from those guys and, yeah, just grew and grew. Yeah, it's fantastic, actually. I, I haven't seen you play live with the Angels, but I've seen videos and it's fantastic, Dave. You, you look very comfortable there and feels like the most obvious thing in the world to have you step in into that, into that role. Why is it, do you think, Australians have this great solid history of outstanding, driving, compelling pub rock bands? Do you have any thoughts on that, Dave? I, I always say Easy Beats kind of wrote the, the blueprint for what, what Australian rock became. But I think there was just such a positive energy going around in the 70s and 80s. And being in a band was something kind of new in the sense of people writing their own songs and and making their own way in the world because obviously as you know a lot of you know normie Rowe used to do covers and a lot of the the previous johnny o'keefe's and stuff all did the big hits of the day but what we had uh, in through the 70s and 80s was bands writing their own material forging their own path and and the pub rock thing I, i'm I, I hate for people to think that it's like this single faceted thing because pub rock covers everything from in excess to ACDC, Midnight to Ice, Oil. Ha- Ice yeah. House, Midnight yeah. Oil, Choir Boys, Wawani, all those people were in the rock, the, the pub rock milieu, but they all had different sounds. Um, yeah, I just think it was a, a, a really positive time for, for youth in Australia or as far as getting out and kind of find their own identity. And that's kind of where where we came in and, you know, the late 80s, we were like, we want to do that as well. So we got there just in time. More power to your arm and to your voice, Dave. It's been so lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. Dave Gleeson, lead singer from The Screaming Jets and these days with The Angels as well. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.